You cannot carry out fundamental change without a certain amount of madness. In this case, it comes from nonconformity. The courage to turn your back on the old formulas. The courage to invent the future. Hello, this is Event the Future, the monthly Marxist-Leninist podcast discussing history, theory, culture, and organizing. I am this month's host, Ilex, and we're glad to be back. Well, sort uh, of monthly. It was monthly. It has not been monthly for a uh, bit. <laughs> monthly-ish, but time is an illusion, so yeah. It's been a lot going on. Anyway, I'm Ethan. This is Alex. I think it's just us. <laughs> yeah. So quiet. Oh, man. Oh, it's so quiet. Oh. oh, boy. Okay, so we have the gang partially here. Um, obviously, with these times, it's kind of difficult to kind of get everyone together, but thankfully we have amazing people here, Ethan and Alex. So for today's topic, we'll be discussing Laos. We're going to talk about the history of Laos during the time of um, their revolution, during the time of Vietnam War, when they were also being bombed by the imperialist United States, as well as Alex is going into, I guess, present day information and stuff like that. Ethan? Yeah, what I'm going to talk about is kind of some history, mostly just in the 20th century, just because that's kind of the most relevant. Because that's the thing is, this is a country, this is a na- nation, a group of peoples with a history that goes back like thousands and thousands of years. And so, and there's rich history. So I'm not going to, I can't get into all that just because of time. But oh, but one thing to start out is that, so, th- so this is a difficult, so for me, with the pronunciation um, of everything, like I find Lao kind of a difficult language along with its really related languages, Thai and Vietnamese and Cambodian and all that, but like I looked up as much as I could. So uh, I apologize if I mispronounce anything, let me know and I will put a correction in. But the the first one is that I, as far as I can tell, it's pronounced Lao, like the name of the country. They don't say the S or when people in the country say the S, they're just emphasizing it for foreigners so they can understand that. Because I guess the S came from the French when they came in, because there are several people groups within Laos and um, they all have Laos in their name, so they, the French called it Laos. I don't know. So it's very complicated, but I believe it's Lao. That, As far as I can tell, it's pronounced Lao. I literally didn't know that until I was researching in depth and I saw that all the stuff from them and them describing themselves were Lao rather than Laos. And then another thing that's interesting that I should note at the beginning, because there will be a lot of names, is that uh, Lao names have the surname last, unlike a lot of, in a lot of Asian languages and cultures, they seem to have the surname or the family name first, including in Viet, uh, Vietnam and, and Cambodia. But in Lao and Thailand, actually, they they have your given name first and your surname last. So just keep that in mind. So anyway, like I said, there was a rich history going back thousands of years. Lao didn't really exist as a geopolitical entity until the 1800s. So for most of history, recorded history, the territory of what we what is now called the Lao People's Democratic Republic was these three kingdoms. There was Luang Prabang, Vinh Chan, 
and Champasak, and all, most of the area was under the control of what was then called the Kingdom of Siam, which is now Thailand. So in the mid-1800s, France uh, starts colonizing Southeast Asia. They named the area of what's now Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, Indochina, French Indochina. So in, yeah, in 1893, Laos is integrated into French Indochina, quote unquote, along with Vietnam and Cambodia, and they rule it directly, like through colonial, their colonial shit, except for the region of Lung Prabang, which was a protectorate. I don't know really what the difference was functionally. I think it was just that it made the king of Lung Prabang feel better. But but in any case, that only lasted for a couple of years because in 1899, the French unified Laos as like a single administrative unit. And so this, for the French, had the opposite effect in that it helped unify. It started developing this idea of Laos as like a specific entity, whereas before it was just a few kingdoms with a bunch of ethnic groups and with, with shared history. So, um, and I think, I mean, I think this is sort of common is that colonize, through colonization, the colonized people in resisting it end up developing a more robust like sense of their own identity to counter losing that through colonization. So at this time, Siam technically was not um, colonized by France or any... I, they were working with the English for a bit. I'm not 100% sure that's a different episode, but, um, but Siam worked with the French colonial officials a lot, and they were adopting this Western idea of territorial claims to help advance their own territorial moves that they'd been going back and forth with in Laos and Cambodia for a long time. Um, and so a French colonial official officially sets the border between Laos and Cambodia as, as one of these rivers. And so French control at this time, as in most of their other colonies, they used a form of what they called native administration, where the top rulers and administrators were French, but then they used locals for the rest of the bureaucratic apparatus as much as possible. So so that they're like, hey, we're uh, teaching them. We're teaching them how to how to govern. We are civilizing them. I mean, the civilizing mission was the whole thing. I mean, a lot of this is just kind of standard colonialism shit and all of that, just insidious policy and all of that. Ethan, Alex, correct me wrong, and also whoever's listening, correct me if I'm wrong, but is this like a common tactic within, I know in colonialism you have certain native people are being put into higher positions so that they become um, almost the um, intelligentsia of the people, but lower than French people would be. But I think within French colonialism, especially takes place because the French wanted to franchise all of their colonies because they wanted them to become citizens, like what you were saying. But I feel like this is specifically a common thing I see throughout French colonialism because I know Fanon also talks about it. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And like for the old podcast when I was um, researching Burkina Faso, that whole area, that was that was the same kind of thing where they had a where the French had like obviously there are French settlers and they're at the top, but then they they sort of elevate, they educate and elevate a certain minor, minority within the indigenous population to kind of do some of the more dirty work for them, if that makes sense. Right. And they usually have like puppet uh, officials and stuff like that, basically to just have the face of the nation do their dirty work. Yeah, exactly. Because, yeah, they, they, they feel like they get their hands clean and they, yeah. So this is no different in Laos. Um, but in the case of Laos in particular, there were these, um, the 
the native administrators were mostly um, from Vietnam because they'd been occupying Vietnam for longer and so they already had the school systems and like educational training set up there already so and there was already a significant Vietnamese population in Laos I mean they didn't the French didn't open a school for training Lao administrators in their language until 1928. So a lot of these, yeah, quote unquote, native administrators were brought in from Vietnam. And so that helped emphasize to the people of Laos sort of the, the disconnect, I guess. So in, uh, in 1923, in order to help themselves feel better, France, they formed an indigenous consultative assembly, which was basically like provincial counselors that they would get together and like, oh, they would, they can talk about what's going on and like make suggestions or whatever. But uh, so it was mostly this provincial council counselors, but they also brought in a bunch of Laotians that had higher education who'd been trained in like some, a lot of them had gone to France to learn or had, had gone kind of around the world and got this education experience. And one of the effects of this was it started bringing together these Lao people from all over the area. And it helps them start to consolidate the idea of like a Lao national consciousness. They're like, okay, well, we're from different regions and maybe different, different ethnic groups, but like, this is what we have in common. And so again, it's these things that France ends up doing that sort of like bite it in the ass later. Kind of in, with that same thing, France spent very little money on education compared to what they had spent in Vietnam. Um, and part of that is that the economy of Laos wasn't particularly profitable for France or for Laos. So Laos is the only completely landlocked country in Southeast Asia. So unlike the, all the other nations that they were colonizing in Southeast Asia, like this didn't have any ports. It didn't. It wasn't a trading hub. So, so the economy wasn't super uh, profitable. France had a couple of mines. I think they had like a tin mine. Um, there was a bit of land that they used for coffee and tobacco production. Basically, um, Laos colonial government made enough money to pay the administrators, and that was about it. Because what the French did in other places was like, obviously they would be extracting most of the resources and the wealth, but to make themselves feel better about their quote-unquote civilizing mission, once again, they would uh, sometimes build like roads and schools and hospitals, but they didn't really do that in Laos at all. So there was not really any money coming out of this area. So they started ramping up production of opium, which has historically been an important crop in this region. But by the 40s, the production and sale of opium was basically the only thing the economy had going for it. And we'll talk about the opium economy later in a little bit. So compared to Vietnam, Laos had very few French settlers, partly for the reasons mentioned before. It wasn't as important to like the colonization and like French control of the region as say Vietnam was. In 1907, the census they took said there were only 189 French people in the whole, in the whole area. And at its height, the French population in Laos was like 500 or something like that. Because a lot of them considered it kind of a dead end colonial posting. Like, oh, if you were in the French military, oh, you don't want to get posted to that part of French Indochina or whatever. So yeah, in France, they had selected the city of it was like a city-state back in back before, but they selected the city of Vinchans. This area had been the economic and cultural center of the area for like a millennium, so they pick it as the capital, and it is still the capital to this day of Laos, the Laos uh, People's Democratic Republic. 
So there was not as much going on. There were, I mean, it's you have the same story of uh, uprisings here and there being put down brutally by these savage French colonists. The place where this story starts to pick up is 1940. Um, after France gets conquered by the Nazis, the Vichy government, which is the like the collaborationist government basically that was quote unquote running France after the Nazis invaded, um, they signed a treaty with Japan, which was allied with Nazi Germany, that allowed Japan to put troops in French Indochina, and their colonial military was too weak to do much of anything anyway. So Japan, which was trying to expand its own empire into all of Asia, was they used some diplomacy to start, they stationed troops there. So then you get to 1941 in January, uh, Thailand, which, so they had changed their name officially to Thailand from Siam in 1939. So they, they see what's going on with the French colonial military being weak because they're like under the control of the Nazis and Japan's in the area. So Thailand attacks the French forces in Cambodia. So they're they're fighting off and on for a few months. And then in May, Japan brokers a peace treaty between France and Thailand that's favorable to Thailand. And they give Thailand back land of Laos that France had taken and given to Thailand in 1905. It was the whole thing. And so, so then the French are like, okay, well, fuck, we got to start resisting Thai nationalism because then they're going to, the people in Thailand and the surrounding areas, they're going to make problems for us. So they start, um, so the, so France ends up funding the Lao Nei newspaper, which it means new Lao, uh, which is the first Lao language newspaper and these other nationalist projects. And what these newspapers end up doing is they help standardize for the first time like a, a unified Lao language. So again, it's this thing that will later end up being used to anti-colonial ends. Which is fun. But yeah, you see that over and over and over again with colonialism. I know our group, we've talked about Vietnam a few times and like Ho Chi Minh specifically, like going to France and learning from like French communists about um, like political theory and all that and then taking it back to his home to defeat the colonizers there. It's beautiful story. So so in these few years while World War II is going on, France, they recruit and fund anti-Japanese guerrillas in Laos. And they're just doing little skirmishes here and there. So in 1945, Japan is, what's the term for that? It's on the ropes, I guess? I don't know. Japan's having a rough time of it in the war. Um, and so they, so in the spring of 1945, Japan T they take over Laos. They just they um, they have all the local rulers renounce their treaties of protectorate with France. Um, they imprison and kill all the French officials where they can. Like they're moving in just because they're it's like their last gasp to try and get the Japanese Empire consolidate as much land as they can. And so the king the king of uh, Luang Prabang, his name Sisavang Vong. Yeah, the language and the names are pretty intense. And, and, and because it's a tonal language as well, and so like the way that just the smallest changes in syllables can have completely different meaning, and it's, it's just, again, this like incredibly rich, beautiful language, and I have like a thick, slow white man tongue, and so it sucks, so I apologize, but I'm trying. <laughs> I um, hated that description. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that wasn't great. Sorry about that. Um, while we're talking about language real quick, though, it's really sad that a lot of these languages don't get to properly kind of develop under positive cultural uh, experiences and growth. Uh, they are put against basically colonization from the French. And it's similar 
to what's happened in other uh, countries. Specifically, obviously, we've talked about Vietnam, where their whole written uh, characters for Vietnamese were completely wiped out because of the French. And so that's why when you try to uh, read Vietnamese, it uh, it doesn't quite capture as uh, adequately the language because it is also a very tonal language because uh, the French basically insisted on yeah Latin characters, which I don't know. It, it sucks. It really does. As someone who loves language and culture, it's just a big, sad mood. And, and in the research for this, like you see the same name spelled three or four different ways just because it's trying to capture a very complex tonal language using letters that are not built for that. And so, yeah, you're totally right. You lose a lot of the nuance and the, yeah, the, the beauty of it. Yeah, so this, um, so the king, uh, Sisa Vang Vong, he's not happy about the Japanese doing this because he had kind of a really cushy deal with France. Like they, they built him a palace, like a, a fancy modern palace, but he doesn't really have ton, a ton of choice. So he declares Luang Phra Brong's independence all while he's kind of secretly collaborating with the French-backed Laotian guerrillas. So, so in August, Japan surrenders to the allies. And so the king's prime minister, Luang Phra Brong's prime minister, his name is Thetsarath Ratambongsa. So he moves to unite, like officially unite Ulang Prabang with the rest of Lao. But the king had already been talking to the French officials about going back to the way things were before the Japanese arrived because um, he was planning on inviting them back in just because he didn't feel like Lao was big enough to defend itself and he just didn't really want to deal with all that. And like I said, he had a nice deal set up with uh, with the French. So by now, the Indo-Chinese Communist Party, which had been started by Ho Chi Minh in the 30s. Oh shit, when did that start? It started in 1930. And so they had, yeah, so the Indo-Chinese Communist Party, they'd been help moving through the region, kind of helping prepare people to resist the French coming back because they knew that was going to be happening. And so the last week of August, 1945, there's an uprising in Bianchan, and the Prime Minister, Fetzarath, he asks the king to declare the unification of the Kingdom of Lao, like, because again, it's never been unified officially except as like a French colonial project. Uh, so early September, Fetzarath, he gets a message from a member of the royal family of Lao, his name's Prince uh, Sofanovong, his name will come up, come up a lot. Uh, in a bit, so you keep that in mind. Prince Sofanavong, he gets a message from this guy, um, this prince. He had been working as an engineer in Vietnam for 15 years. And so uh, Prince Sofanavong, he sent this message to Fetzarath. He said, hey, I've been negotiating with the new government of the, the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, quote unquote, North Vietnam, to get aid and form a united bloc uh, to oppose the return of colonialism. Like, do you want, should I tell him we're in? And Fetzarath says no. And the reason he said no was because he'd been in touch with the United States and with the OSS, the um, precursor to the CIA, and they'd been telling him that the U.S.'s stance was that France shouldn't take its colonies back after the war, which was apparently Roosevelt's stance, but Roosevelt had died in April, so the U.S. wasn't really going to help out resist the French, but so this, so Fetzroth, he was running off of old information. So anyway, um, September 15th, he's like, okay, fuck it. And uh, Prime Minister uh, Fetzroth, he officially, he officially declares the unification of the Lao Kingdom, and the king fires him as a result, because he was like, you're going up you're going above and beyond your duties. So yeah, he fires him. 
So as a result, in October, the Lao Isara movement is formed, which means free Lao. The Lao Isara movement is formed by Fetzeroth and some other Lao nationalists. And so around this time, Prince Sufanavong, who had been in Vietnam, he comes back to Laos, he's appointed a minister in this Lao Isara government. And Sufanavong in particular puts together something that's called the Committee for Independence, and he uses his position in the government to form a military alliance with Vietnam. So a couple weeks later, this this new like this new movement, they go to ask the king to step down and say like, hey, we're uh, it's it's the 40s. We're doing we're doing constitutional stuff now. Like this monarchy shit, we're done with it. And so the king refuses, as you might imagine. And so they go in and they force him to resign. Uh, so Fetzerati becomes the head of state, and the government declares that nobody, no government officials, nobody in the government is allowed to have contact with the French. So I mean, some of this sounds good, but the problem is that this Laosar government, they don't have any money, and they can't get any foreign aid because um, no, like obviously France isn't going to do that, and the U.S. is not going to get involved, and nobody, nobody else in the region who has any money is is willing to do anything, so they don't have any money. And they can't make any money off of the opium trade because the state had very little control of it. So they get a printing press. They negotiate to get a printing press from the Thai government. And so they start printing a bunch of money, which becomes almost instantly worthless. And so then you have those same Lao guerrillas that France funded against the Japanese. Um, they're still in play, but now they, the French are funding them to uh, attack this government. And so, so they're trying to fight off these French-backed insurgents. So up until up until 1946, China, like nationalist China at this point, had their troops throughout uh, Indochina because they had been uh, fighting the Japanese. And so France negotiates with China to get their troops out of the region of Indochina. Imagine that's in quotes when I say it. So, so they negotiate with China to get their troops out of Indochina. And when this happens, th these guerrillas attack Vinchan in March of 1946. And then the French uh, send in some air support and they end up killing hundreds of civilians. Uh, so one of the ministers of Lao Isara asks King Sisavang Vong, he says, hey, can you, I know we kicked you out, can you take your throne again? Like, you can be a constitutional monarch, they're, they're doing that too. Um, you can be a constitutional monarch, it'll help us be legitimate. And so he agrees and he gives a royal ordinance to unify the kingdom of Lao. So that was in April. By the end of April, French troops, just the straight up French, uh, not even just their guerrillas anymore, they move into the capital and drive out the Laoisar government who have to go live in Thailand, escape to Thailand, and they start directing guerrilla attacks against the new French government again. So then in August, the, um, they start to work. The French are like, hey, we're gonna work with you. Like, we're gonna, this is, this is legit colonialism now. Like, we're not, sorry about all the bad stuff before. Um, so they say, we're gonna, you guys can start working on a constitution. You're gonna have like representatives. It's gonna be great. And so they, have new elections in August 1947, and the prime minister is this guy, Prince, another member of the royal family called Prince uh, Suvanarath, who's the half-brother of the other prince I mentioned earlier, Suvanavong. So we're about late 1947 at this point. The Lao Isara government in exile kind of falls apart because Thailand has a right-wing coup in November, and Thailand normalizes relations with France, so they can't really hide in Thailand to attack the, like, to direct guerrilla attacks against the French anymore. 
um, Prince Sufanavong, who, um, just a reminder, was the one f- who lived in Vietnam. He still wants to work with Vietnam. He says, hey, Vietnam will help us out, but nobody else in the Asara government wants to work with Vietnam, so Prince Sufanavong either resigns or is thrown out. I wasn't, I wasn't, I couldn't find out which exactly was the case. So in July of 1949, the Royal Lao, it was called the Royal Lao government now. The Royal Lao government and France, they signed a new treaty that gives, that will give, that will give amnesty to um, the former Lao Asara government officials. So most of them come back and they dissolve Lao Asara. They're like, okay, that's, that's fine. We don't need to keep trying to do this. Under this treaty, Lao could represent itself in the UN, but France still controlled the military and foreign policy. Um, so it's obviously a kind of really uh, stupid thing. Um, and, and so around this time, about 80% of the Vietnamese population in the main cities of Laos returned to Vietnam. So the 50s are where things get start getting crazy and then they don't let up until like the 70s. So in 1950, the US recognizes Lao, like they're like you're you're a real thing. Good work. congratulations. <laughs> we see you, we hear you. Yeah, exactly. You are so valid. And Prince Sufanavong and some Laotian communists and and other leftists, they form a group that later becomes known as the Patet Lao, which is which means Lao Nation. And then they had the the political arm was a party called uh, Neo Lao Isara, which is the Free Lao Front. But anyway, yeah, so so the this is the Patet Lao, you'll hear a lot of, about them from now on. And so some of the other important names that'll come back that are part of founding this are uh, there's Kherson, Fomivan, uh, Nuhak, Fomsavan. Uh, yeah, both of those names will come back. So about this time, um, the Royal Lao government starts ramping up opium production so they can start making some money because uh, throughout this period, they just have really, really terrible infrastructure, like terrible roads, there's almost no air transport, telecommunications are really bad, so it's difficult to hear what's going on on one end of the country. And um, so they start making enough money from opium production, and there's so little going on economically in the rest of the country that the RLG basically doesn't tax the peasantry at all. Um, and most of the aristocracy at this point are political elites, or like people in the, the, the government bureaucracy. They're either political elites or children of political elites. And overall, the country is uh, really fucking poor. You have, so in 1951, there are new elections, and the prime minister is this guy named Suvana Foma, who is a nephew of King Sisavang Vong. Suvana Fuma will come back a lot. At this point in the north and the kind of the northeast of the country, um, bordering China and Vietnam, you have the uh, Patet Lao, they kind of form a sort of a, a secondary government um, where they're kind of controlling what's going on in a lot of the villages there. Like it's not a state exactly, but it's um, they're kind of in charge of what's going on there. And that, so that's in April 1953 when that happens. In October 1953, the Royal Lao government signs a treaty with France giving it uh, full independence. So France is like, all right, we, we're, we're losing our colonies all over the place. Like, I, we don't have the resources to keep this up. You're, you're good. And, and part of the reason for that is because they're getting their asses kicked. Uh, the French are getting their asses kicked by 
the Viet Minh and the Vietnamese army. And so in 1954, Vietnam, they push into Laos. So they push the French out of Vietnam. They push into Laos and defeat the French there. And so um, independent Laos sends a delegate to the Geneva Conference that ends the first Indochina War in July of 1954. And so part of that conference is a treaty that says Laos can't have any foreign military bases or participate in any foreign military alliances. So um, all the signatories to this say, oh yeah, that's fine. The US is there. They're like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so in the 1950s, the mid 1950s, that's when the US starts to kind of ramp up their uh, anti-communism and you know, solidifying the US imperial hold around the world. Very cool. <sighs> well, yeah, so France mostly stops being the villain here and it moves to the US, so um, very cool. So the US has a like embassy mission in Laos. Still a lot of them consider it kind of a dead end job, but they're you know creating their little enclaves of American style houses with their American food and American restaurants and you know colonizer settler shit. So th- at this point the, the Royal Lao government is actively seeking US involvement and investment. Because like they again, they don't have any money, and they see, and most of them don't like the French, and so they say, "Hey, listen, this, the U.S. is uh, they they they're throwing around a lot of money. Like, let's see what we can do." And so the new prime minister at the time, his name's Kate Don uh, Sasarith. He writes a pamphlet that he that's distributed all over the place called "Lao: Ideal Cornerstone in the Anti-Communist Struggle in Southeast Asia." And so yeah, and so then the U.S. is like, "Oh, real shit." <laughs> so Jesus Christ. King Sisavong Vong's son, the crown prince Sisavong Vatana, he flies to Paris to meet with the Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, who, uh, if you're not familiar with him and his brother, the CIA head, Alan Dulles, the great Satans of the 20th century. Uh, so he goes to meet him and says that, uh, hey, listen, the, the crown prince says, hey, listen, the, uh, Lao, the, the people of Lao, we hate communism. We're opposed to communism. Don't worry. You should come here and help us uh, fight communism by giving us a lot of money. And so Dulles tells him, uh, John Foster Dulles tells the crown prince, this is a quote, you can count upon our support, moral, political, and material, so long as that support goes to a government vigorously seeking to maintain its own independence. And so right at at the same time he's saying those words, the U.S. is paying the salaries of the uh, Royal Lao Army, which the French had created as a police force, but uh, yeah. Um, the U.S. is paying all of their salaries, so obviously they are the ones. The, the U.S. is calling the shots for the for the the army, basically. So, and uh, like friend of the show, Chairman Mao said, political power grows from the barrel of a gun. Um, anyway, so in December 1954, the U.S. They start, the U.S. starts ramping up their military operations, secret military operations in Vanchan and Laos, and they start this thing called the Programs Evaluation Office, which sounds like just kind of really boring bureaucratic stuff, but that was kind of the CIA's foot, and then the U.S. and the State Department's foothold in Laos, and where they ran all their ops out of, and they staffed it with quote-unquote retired military to get around the prohibitions of the Geneva Agreement, which said that Laos can't have foreign military personnel, foreign military bases, or military alliances. So they're like, oh yeah, no, these guys totally retired. And they would, these soldiers and military intelligence, they would wear civilian clothes, they would not address each other by their rank. But yeah, they were, I mean, they they were just doing all of their ridiculous shit, just like the most basic veneer of uh, quote unquote credibility, anyway. 
one of the things they're doing is, um, because so the, the currency in Laos is the KIP, and the US begins to tie the KIP to the dollar, which results in this just wildly over, overvalued KIP. So people all over the region start using KIP to import and export goods, which they turn back into dollars. Basically, so on paper, it looks like Laos is making tons and tons of money, but they don't have any industry, like nothing, they don't make anything. There's, it's mostly just subsistence farmers. But on paper, it looks great. And people from all over the region use Laos to start like basically laundering, um, yeah, laundering money. Yeah, and so basically the main result is that this just results in massive graft and corruption. So whereas before I said the um, political elites were mostly in the political bu bureaucracy, like that's still true, but even back then they didn't have that much more money, like conspicuous wealth. But now you start having people like, oh, they're buying, importing fancy cars and uh, beautiful houses and all of this, all of the, again, conspicuous consumption and like start building up just bourgeois shit that, hadn't really existed as much before, but the US, like fucking with the Lao currency, kind of has, yeah, has this result. So we're at about 1955 at this point, the Patet Lao's political party, um, Neo Lao Sara, they become the Neo Lao Haksat, the NLHX, I'll just refer to it as. Um, but it's the, that means like, it's the Lao Patriotic Front. Um, and so they've still been kind of doing guerrilla warfare here and there because the government has refused to like have a coalition with the Patet Lao and the left. So then in, yeah, 1956, uh, Suvana Fuma, he becomes the prime minister again. And he says, okay, we should, we need to stop this internal struggle stuff. So he starts working really hard to get the Patet Lao and the provinces under their control to reunite with the rest of Lao. And he wants to integrate the Patet Lao guerrillas into the Royal Army. And so he starts negotiations to form a coalition, uh, coalition government with the NLHX. Uh, and Suvana Fuma, he visits Beijing and Hanoi, and he has a nice time, but he reminds, uh, he reminds the Vietnamese government and the Chinese government that if they support the Patet Lao, it violates their non-interference agreements. Um, and then the US ambassador in uh, Vientiane, Graham Parsons, he warns um, Suvana Fuma that the U.S. is completely opposed to a coalition government with the Patet Lao. So we get to 1957. King Sisa Vong Vong, he pardons Prince Fetzeroth um, from way back before. He was the prime minister back when the French were there. He pardons him um, and makes him a viceroy again. Uh, and then Suvana Fuma resigns in February over a, quote, unfavorable vote. I couldn't figure out what was going on with that, but uh, he comes back to his position as prime minister in August when there's a cabinet crisis and the king says, hey, can you come back? I want you to form a new government. And this happened, I mean, this has happened like five times already and it will happen many more. So this new coalition government, they give the Patet Lao two seats in the assembly and they start integrating those Patet Lao forces into the RLG army and they make Prince Sufanavong, one of the leaders of the Patet Lao, Sufanavong becomes the Minister of Planning and Development. And so now that there's the Patet Lao representation in the government, they start calling for diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union and acceptance of aid from the socialist bloc, because they're already accepting aid from the capitalist West, so they're like, hey, if we were gonna be neutral, we should uh, get money from all, uh, from everybody who wants to give it to us. And so part of the condition for this is they set new elections in May 1958, and Suvana Fuma goes to Washington to say, hey, listen, please do not withdraw your aid. I know we have a coalition government, 
I promise it'll be okay. So the elections are coming up. The U.S. is concerned about them because the Patet Lao are basically openly r running as communists and as socialists and as allies to communist China and Vietnam and on a platform of anti-corruption and national unity. So the ambassador, um, Graham Parsons, he works with the CIA to come up with Operation Booster Shot where they end up sending uh, teams throughout the country, especially in the previously Patet Lao controlled areas, basically to electioneer and um, stuff ballot boxes for the approved candidates. But more, a bigger part of that is they start ramping up direct aid. Um, and so, so I, and this is like building equipment, clothes, food, uh, machinery like bulldozers and stuff. And then right around this time, they get a brand new ambassador, Horace Smith, who says, because originally the people doing this plan, they want to have um, you know unmarked planes just dropping stuff off. But this guy, this ambassador says, no, we are gonna let them know who's giving them this stuff so that they know that, so that they can know who to vote for. So he says, they'll fly openly US planes to drop packages and like put US flags on the equipment and on the boxes. Like literally there's stories of like bulldozers being parachuted in with big American flags painted on the side. And they're just, yeah, sending just shit all over the place. There was one story I read of, uh, they were airdropping leather shoes into village, like a village that had no roads and was muddy all year. And so the communists the and the Patet Lao, in a few cases, they said, oh no, that aid actually came from China if it was like good stuff. But more often they just started spreading propaganda in like the positive sense, saying that the aid was basically just a craven attempt to buy votes, which it was. Um, there was one quote from a, like a pamphlet, I think, that was going around. It said, you see, little villagers, now that your votes are precious to the government, you're being showered with gifts. If the government is so rich that it can now give away these things to you, you can imagine how much the government has put away in its coffers for the past years, depriving you of your rightful share of American aid. Um, Damn. Also... The Patet Lao were disciplined, and so they only ran one candidate per contested seat, whereas all the non-communist parties, for the 20 contest contested seats they were running for, they ran 84 candidates total, which is not what you really want to be doing if you want to win, but so the Patet Lao and their coalition allies win 13 of the 21 contested seats, which gives them control of about one third of the National Assembly. And so the ambassador, the US ambassador, uh, Horace Smith, he tells Washington after Operation Booster Shot, he says that the operation, quote, has had a greater impact on Laos than any other aid program which the United States has undertaken in this area to date, which is funny because uh, they just got their asses kicked in the elections. Um, so the U.S. obviously flips out and they cut aid to Laos, forcing Savannah Fuma to resign because like, that was how the entire economy was running. The new prime minister, his name is uh, Foi Sananekon, he excludes the Patet Lao, the, the NLHX, from ministerial posts and begins a government shift to the right. So, so they, just won this, they just won seats in the, the election and the new prime minister says that they can't occupy those seats. And yeah, just everything starts shifting to the right. In June, this group called the Committee for the Defense of National Interests is formed by pro-American Lao and they secure four seats in the new government, and it's mostly it's mostly people like it's mostly people in the military who are who are doing this, who are a member of this group. 
And so, predictably, USAID starts up again once they get rid of the left, the leftists from their government. USAID starts up again, um, and they start paying for the army salaries again. And the army salaries, uh, so the army salaries paid for by the US become the main source of liquid cash in the Lao economy and starts like driving commercial developments. So it's a whole big mess. So it's December 1958 still. Um, North Vietnam occupies several villages um, on Lao land, according to the current borders, near the um, DMZ between North Vietnam and South Vietnam. Historically, they'd been part of, these villages had been part of Vietnam, but uh, obviously the government freaked out and so January 1959 they give emergency powers to um, the Prime Minister for uh, one year to deal with the Vietnamese and in the summer one of the uh, Patet Lao battalions that was supposed to integrate with the army they run away and they join the Vietnamese forces up in the north so the government starts arresting the members of the NLHX, uh, the Patet Laos Party. And so because they had such a bad communications infrastructure, they didn't really know if Vietnam was actually invading. I mean, that's what they said. So it gave them an excuse to like, you know, further crack down. And so then in October, Prince Fetsarath dies. He was the PM back in, in the 40s. Um, king Sisavan Vong dies. And then the new king is his son, Sisavang Batana. So then, in December, the prime minister, the current prime minister, Foi uh, Sananakon, he gives up his emergency powers to help calm everyone down because obviously, like all these elder statesmen just died, and there's a lot of so he's like, hey, I'm giving up my powers. Don't worry about it. And that's in December, and then December 31st, that Committee for the Defense of National Interests, under the leadership of this guy uh, named General Fumi Nasavan. He was, uh, he was the head of the um, Royal Lao Army, and he was a French-trained officer who became good friends with a CIA agent named Jack Hazy back when he was in France. Um, he takes control. So, so Fu gives up his emergency powers, and this, this general takes control within like two weeks and forces Fui to resign. He, he's in charge, basically, and he instantly throws his support behind US foreign policy. Um, and he swears allegiance to the king and to this new king. And the new king is upset because he supports constitutional rule, but he says, I'll approve your government if you have elections in May. So in, in May, they sweep the elections, the CDNI, they sweep the elections through a combination of gerrymandering, buying votes, and just straight up intimidating people. Um, and so this general, General Fumi, he becomes the Minister of Defense, and his Prime Minister is Prince Somsanith, who was a cousin of the former Prime Minister, Prince Susavan Foma. Uh, it's just a lot of princes. There's so many like cousins and half-brothers, and it's, yeah, it's wild. And somewhere around this time, and I'm not sure exactly where, um, the arrested members of uh, the Patet Lao, including uh, Prince Susavong, who had been arrested, they managed to escape by convincing their guards to join them. And they all escaped to Vietnam, which I think is hilarious. So, so May, the CDNI sweeps the elections, um, and they put in, they've got this like right-wing government. But then in August 9th, the second paratroop battalion of the Royal Lao Army takes control of the government offices in Vinchang, uh, the power plant, the communications, and they're under the leadership of this guy named Captain uh, Kung Lei. And he's a US trained officer, but he was like 
he seems like he was. Uh, he seems like he had good intentions. He see, like from what I could tell, he seems like he had a good heart. And he said, uh, like on the radio, he said after this coup, he said, "What leads us to carry out this revolution is our desire to stop the bloody civil war, eliminate grasping public servants and military commanders whose property amounts to much more than their monthly salaries can afford. It is the Americans who have bought government officials and army commanders and caused war and dissension in our country." So he calls for Savannah Fuma to be the prime minister again, but he doesn't really have a plan for how to run the country or what they're going to do once they took control. He just wants the old prime minister back because he felt like he was the best chance at like national unity. Um, so the current prime minister, Fumi, General Fumi, he denounces Kung Lei as a communist, and the U.S. warns him that they want, uh, quote, an acceptable power balance of non-communist elements which would eliminate Kung Lei and restore authority and stability. And so within a few weeks, there are 41 deputies of the National Assembly, like most of the, nas- most of the deputies of the National Assembly are there, and they vote unanimously to censure the current government, um, the General Fumi government with Prince Somsanath. So Somsanath resigns, and the king appoints the old prime minister, Sivana Fuma, as prime minister again to form a new government. And then on August 16th, the deputies approve this new government, and so Kung Lei says publicly, my goals are accomplished, and he steps down from like any position of authority. Back, back to his job in the uh, army, basically. And so basically, as soon as this coup happened, so General Fumi went to Thailand to talk to the US ambassador and asked for um, US resources and logistical support to take the government back. And the US immediately was like, yeah, yeah, of course, we got you. So all this is happening really fast uh, here. So stop me if I'm going too fast, because there's a lot of events that happen in a short period of time. So the prime minister, the new slash old prime minister, Suvana Fuma, he recognizes that he's got to accommodate both sides, including the, the Patet Lao and the, the more rightist factions. He's got to accommodate them both somehow, or else there's going to be a civil war. So he brings, so he appoints uh, General Fumi to be the deputy prime minister and the minister of the interior. But um, General Fumi wanted to be the minister of defense, and so since he wasn't, he won't participate. And so the CIA starts flying war material into the area that um, his forces control on the Thai border, and Thailand blockades the capital, Vanchan. So in October, the U.S. suspends their cash aid to Suvana Fuma's government, and they fly in the assist, the, so the new U.S. Assistant Secretary of State and former ambassador to Lao, Graham Parsons, they fly him back in, and he insists that negotiations with the Patet Lao have to stop. Savannah Fuma disagrees. But Parsons, the, so they negotiate, and Parsons starts USAID flowing again only when Savannah Fuma agrees to accept U.S. arms shipments to General Fumi as long as they promise to only use them against the Patet Lao, which is obviously mm, really silly. It's fucking stupid. Anyway, um, so the US starts, they start sending their cash aid again and paying the army again, but Thailand doesn't lift the blockade so of the capital city. So they're, they're running out of food and fuel, and so 
Subana Fuma asks the yes, the Soviet Union to give them some gas to keep it operating. Well, this obviously upsets the Americans. And so the National Assembly, they meet to censure Subana Fuma's government. Um, and they form a new one with another prince as the prime minister, Baun Um. They make him the prime minister since the king doesn't want a general to be the prime minister, but General Fumi is basically in charge and everyone knows that. In December, General Fumi, his forces, they march on Venchan and about 600 civilians are killed, thousands injured, and they wreck a lot of the city. And on December 10th, just a couple days later, the leftist cabinet, uh, this one leftist cabinet minister flies to Hanoi and signs an agreement for North Vietnam to send weapons and supplies to the forces that are fighting General Fumi's forces. Um, and so the Patet Lao, and their allies, they're actually being led by that captain from who did the coup before, Kung Lei. Um, he's like one of the head guys now, and they're retreating up north and northeast to those like historically Patet Lao um, sympathetic regions, and they get resupplied with some uh, Soviet heavy weapons. Uh, I don't know where those came from, if Vietnam brought them or if the USSR just, uh, they fell off the back of a truck, we'll go with that. <laughs> So one of the impacts of this whole this whole like debacle is that the people of Laos start to see that the Patet Lao are the ones who are standing up against U.S. and Thai-backed aggression, and then people start feeling the pinch of the blockade, and they blame Thailand and the U.S. and the government forces that are working with them. So really, what it ends up doing is driving a lot of people to support the Patet Lao. And the communists who are, who, uh, yeah, hold a lot of territory in the north and northeast, which is where a lot of the ethnic minorities in the country live. Um, and so, and I was reading this one source that was like, it was from like a US State Department source, um, which like obviously has a bunch of terrible shit in it, but it was interesting to get that perspective. One of the perspectives in it is they're talking about like, oh, it was really easy for the Patet Lao to take uh, control of these villages because they would like involve the whole village and like the children and the women would have jobs and be part of what was going on. And I was like, huh, I wonder why that was appealing to people. <laughs> I love when they try to uh, frame that kind of stuff as insidious. <laughs> it's like, oh, they're trying to indoctrinate them. No, they're they're trying to have everyone involved as a community. You exactly, exactly. But like, because the U.S. and like capitalists can't imagine doing something like with good intentions, like when when something good, like when a, a political when one of their enemies does something that is like a social good or like involves historically like ignored or oppressed people, they're like, well, clearly they're just doing this in order to uh, gain sympathy or something. Right. Yeah. They always frame it as uh, some kind of strategic sneakiness or something yeah it's, it's fucking ridiculous so at this point um so the patet lao and their allies they get pushed back into their territory but then they launch a counteroffensive and they drive uh the government forces back to van Chan. so the new kennedy administration in the u.s is like wow this is not really working because their goal at this point was obviously to solve this with the military, but it wasn't working because they're getting they're getting beat back. So the um, Kennedy administration like, okay, all right, let's let's knock this off. Like everyone, come to the table. And so uh, so they have another Geneva conference, and they there's a like the right rightist group has a representative, the neutralists quote unquote have a representative, and then the Patet Lao has a representative, along with representatives from Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam. 
Um, and then Kennedy and Khrushchev talked about the situation at a meeting in Vienna. And so basically they say that they'll form a new government, like a coalition government, and all foreign countries would agree not to support the conflict. Uh, and so they agree on June 23rd, 1962 to form a new coalition government with, uh, guess who is the prime minister, Suvana Fuma. And so they have seven neutralist seats. They have four rightist party um, seats, four popped at Lao seats, and then four unaffiliated seats. And I'm not sure what the difference between neutralists and unaffiliated was, but there were more of the neutralists, so. Since 1959, Vietnam and the Patet Lao, they'd been building building out what would later be called the Ho Chi Minh Trail through parts of Laos and Cambodia to get supplies and troops from North Vietnam to South Vietnam. And so these were existing trails that they, uh, they expanded and kind of helped, made easier to facilitate like troop movements and material and supplies and all of that. So this is going through Laos and Cambodia and the U.S. is aware of this. And so in 1964, when they're really starting their attacks on Vietnam, they start bombing Laos, and we start what's called the secret war. So the CIA and the US military fund and do logistics for just every level of this with, like you'd have Air Force pilots resigning and then flying for the CIA's quote unquote civilian airline, uh, Air America, that's a whole, that's a whole other thing. Um, or you'd have US troops getting their names scrubbed from the rolls and joining up with these companies that the CIA had started to get them into the country. And, and I, there was this one quote I saw in uh, one of the sources I will link here, Killing Hope by William Bloom. Um, U.S. military advisors and CIA personnel moved across the border into Thailand where they were flown in every day to Laos like commuters by Air America, whose entire helicopter operation was based in Thailand. And so Air America, which again was... So so just to briefly explain Air America, I mean, we could... I, I, could, I could do a whole episode on this and probably should, but um, it was a passenger and cargo airline that uh, the CIA bought in 1950 to like supply and support covert ops all throughout Southeast Asia. They would fly weapons, they would fly troops and personnel, do logistical support. They would fly around a huge amount of heroin and opium because, I mean, so I'll only briefly talk about the heroin thing because it's such a huge topic, but um, the Golden Triangle is the areas of Myanmar, Laos, and Thailand that make up what was at the time the world's largest source of opium and heroin, which was only surpassed by Afghanistan in 1991. But basically this was, um, like the CIA and the U.S. government were, uh, they were transporting massive amounts of heroin, of opium. They were like some of the big, biggest, like the CIA was operating one of the biggest drug operations in the world to finance all of this shit. And they would sell heroin and opium to make heroin to give payouts to their guerrillas in the area, to give people money to buy weapons. Sometimes they would just pay people in opium or heroin um it's it's a whole it's a whole thing and i mean this happens i mean there's a reason that the that afghanistan being one of the biggest opium producing countries in the world i mean it currently is like the biggest that's directly tied in with u.s occupation there um and that's again that's a whole thing there uh, I'll, I'll include some sources on this you could like you can really go deep down that rabbit hole but i mean and then it happens here in the western hemisphere too with um cocaine and like DEA in Latin America, it's it's a lot. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. The U.S. is like one of those big fucking, biggest fucking drug trafficking 
cartels, like operations in on the fucking planet. And this is all, and this is all happening. Like a lot of this is happening. I mean, this happened before this, before the '80s. But in the '80s, you got the war on drugs happen. Oh, we have to. Yeah, we absolutely do have to do an episode on cocaine. Absolutely, because um, you do have the war on drugs. While at the exact same time, you've got like the U.S. and the DEA fucking financing and trafficking just ludicrous amounts of cocaine and coca throughout Latin America, and just completely destroying all kinds of people's lives and governments and the same thing was happening here in Laos just with heroin and opium um, and and in Vietnam and in Thailand and in Cambodia and the whole region and and opium and heroin will come back up when we talk about modern Laos it's it's fucked um, but I was just gonna say um, with the title secret roar I'm very curious as to why the United States calls it that merely because who's a secret for, you know, like at the end of the day, it's centered on something where someone doesn't know. And obviously, you know, that people in Laos do know what's going on. So that leads to kind of a conversation of the United States and people that live in the United States. So, yeah. Right. It's it's purely for keeping up this view of the U.S. as some kind of bastion of of liberty or whatever because we're not going to talk about this we're not going to talk about how much death and destruction we caused for these people well right like because yeah and i mean they call this the secret war because it was happening because the officially the war was in vietnam like officially they they were in a they were part of a treaty like an agreement that they wouldn't do anything in Laos so it's all hidden behind again like just the the barest veneer of of diplomatic nicety it's but it's yeah this is sure as fuck not secret to the people of Laos it's it's insane um so um, and and part of the part of keeping the secret was um Americans that were killed in Laos like either in the operations fighting against the pot at Laos or in plane crashes or, or anything they they were listed as they were either listed as having died in Vietnam or they were listed as they were civilians who died in South Asia or like there was there was something that happened last year you had um, Howard Dean who was the former governor of uh, whatever what the fucking state was that uh, former governor of Vermont and he like ran for president a few times he was I don't I don't even remember it was some like pro troop bullshit I think but he was saying something about like oh yeah it's terrible my brother died on a backpacking trip in Laos in 1973 and everyone was like why was your brother in Laos and backpacking in Laos in 1973 and he's like uh he was just backpacking and so then like <laughs> oh yeah I remember yeah this. and it's like you're not fooling anybody you prick and so like and I mean it's even on his fucking Wikipedia page it says that his brother um his parent their parents are like oh yeah no he was in the CIA but Howard Dean's like no if you look at the CIA's list of operatives, he's not on there. It's like, shut up. We're not ten. Like, just admit that your admit that your brother got rightfully owned by the people he was trying to do like <laughs> crimes against humanity on. Jesus Christ. Anyway, fuck that guy. I'll see you in hell. But uh, sorry, I was just gonna say what you're saying reminds me a lot of like both the United States government is both um, gaslighting. I mean, that's like 
a weighted term, but gaslighting people in Laos and Vietnam and the world saying, we're not doing this, but also infantilizing their own citizens because they're like, it's, it's not really like that. I mean, it's like, it's like that, but it's not really the way that you think it is because you wouldn't understand what we need to do for your freedoms and stuff. Yeah, it's 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 obscene. It's really it's really disgusting. Um, so another quote from William Bloom. Um, he has a chapter on the CIA in Laos. It's harrowing, obviously. The quote here's the quote. It says, um, "Laos was an American plantation, a CIA playground." During the 1960s, the agency roamed over much of the land at will, building an airstrip, a hangar or a base here, a warehouse, barracks, or a radar site there, relocating thousands of people, entire villages, whole tribes to suit strategic military needs, recruiting warriors through money and or the threat or use of force and or promises of independent kingdoms, which it had no intention of fulfilling, and then keeping them fighting long beyond the point when they wished to stop. And so that's, I, so I got to briefly mention something I haven't really mentioned here. I, I got briefly mentioned the Hmong. Um, the Hmong are an ethnic minority group throughout Southeast Asia. Um, they're in Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, all over the place. Um, and so basically since the, since the French left, the U.S. and the Royal Lao Army had been funding Hmong guerrillas basically with money and weapons for years and years. And so it's around this time during this basically what, what is considered the Lao Civil War. You start seeing Hmong guerrillas fighting the Patet Lao on the side of the U.S. You saw this happening in Vietnam as well. They're fighting with the um, with the U.S. It's a really complicated issue that I don't have I don't have the information to kind of do it justice. Just know that once the U.S. pulled out of Southeast Asia, a lot of times they left. They they moved some of the Hmong. They're Hmong guerrillas to the U.S., and so you have people in places like Michigan. You have large Hmong populations in places like Minnesota and uh, Michigan as a result of fleeing Southeast Asia after the U.S. retreated. But in a lot of other cases, they the U.S. just kind of cut them high and dry and ended up bombing uh, Hmong villages or attacking them with Agent Orange or other defoliants and chemical. And, and so it's a, it's a complicated, weird thing. Again, I can't do it justice in the time that I have here. Yeah, it's, it, it, is, it is fucked. But I just know that it's a, another complicated issue here. Um, the Hmong are still there in the region. Um, it, it was by no means every member of this ethnic group. It's just, it just happened to be the largest specific ethnic group that was funded in this way. So uh, anyway, so back to the CIA fuckery, um, they'd be they would drop counterfeit money in Patet Lao controlled areas to destroy their economy. And the Lao government and the U.S., they would literally just make up stories of Vietnam invading to justify keeping their attention and their forces on Lao and countering communism there. So this next part, this was this was tough. Um, and and this is just really. I, I don't I don't I don't have I don't have the language for it. From 1965 to 1973, the U.S. dropped over two million tons of bombs on Laos, which is about the same number, uh, same weight or number of bombs as the U.S. dropped in all of World War II in the Western Front and the Pacific Front. This is conventional explosives. 
this is napalm, this is white phosphorus, this is Agent Orange, this is anti-civilian like cluster bombs. Um, they ran 580,000 bombing missions equal to a plane load of bombs every eight minutes, 24 hours a day for nine years. And Laos is the most heavily bombed country per capita of all time. And so they, I mean, obviously, uh, yeah, they killed uh, just count like countless people. But the thing is, so that's over 2 million tons of bombs. A third of those bombs didn't explode. And so there have been 20,000 people killed by unexploded bombs since 1975. And as of 10 years ago, over a third of all the arable land in Laos was unusable because there was unexploded ordnance there. There were bombs. You couldn't farm there because you wouldn't know if you touch a bomb and like fucking explode, which has happened to 20,000 people. Um, and yeah, and I will... So the, the thing I'll say to wrap that up is this quote from you... Alexis Johnson, uh, I don't know what the U stands for, he was the U.S. Undersecretary of State in 1971. He said, the Lao operation is something of which we can be proud as Americans. It has involved virtually no American casualties. <laughs> what we are getting for our money there is, I think, to use the old phrase, very cost-effective. Jesus. Fuck. I hate that. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I read another thing just on that topic where it said the amount that they dropped was equivalent to like a ton per person. And at the time they only had a population of about 3.5 million. So 50,000 people dead out of that small population is just devastating. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't think that people know. I mean, I, I think some people know that like you hear, People talk about the bombing in Cambodia, which which is good because obviously that was that was nightmarish uh, to to a similar degree. Um, and and obviously, I, like everyone knows about the Vietnam War and how it was, uh, you know, like oh it was it was it was bad or whatever. But like the human cost of of this is un. Uh, I don't have words to pro to properly properly articulate it. I just can't wrap my head around what that does to a country, like what that does to a history and a culture. And, and again, it's a culture that's been around for thousands of years, and you're getting mm -hmm. and and it's the most bombed country in history. Like. It's amazing that there's anything there and that they survived and that they are still going. Like that's fucking incredible, right. but it's it's mm -hmm. it's it's monstrous. It's there is nothing yeah. how irredeemable is this country? Just every yeah. piece of it, mm -hmm. like obviously from the very first second, it was built on. I mean, uh, yeah, every, like if you're listening to this, you know that. Like it was built on just unimaginable genocide and and slavery and just the worst of humanity. But like, there are people who were alive when this happened. They're still alive. They saw. They lived through this. 
And some of the people who participate in this are still alive and they never faced consequences and they never will because they'll die first. Mm -hmm. And ah, it, it's hard. I, that's hard. Right. So anyway, uh, just a very pleasant transition. Well, yeah, well, that's there's yeah, there's not much you could do. I, and also just for anyone who doesn't know, Lao as just a geographic space is quite small. Like I think I saw something say it's about the size of Utah. So just that also puts that into perspective with how much destruction and just how do you recover from that, honestly? And that's, yeah. that's something that I think I'll kind of touch on a little bit. Like it's, it's rough. Yeah. So yeah, one of the other things I was going to say is that uh, in uh, like this wasn't unknown at the time. In October 1971, there was this quote from the Guardian: "Quote, although U.S. officials deny it vehemently, ample evidence exists to confirm charges that the Hmong villages that do try to find their own way out of the war, even if it is simply by staying neutral and refusing to send their 13-year-olds to fight in the CIA army, are immediately denied American rice and transport, and ultimately are bombed by the U.S. Air Force." And so, so that's that's another example of like, so specifically with the the uh, Mong situation, like one of the reasons that so many of them did end up doing that was because they got into a position where they couldn't not, or else they would suffer the same fate as the as the rest of the U.S.'s enemies. Yeah, absolutely fucked. But in 1975, uh, uh, Vietnam, with with the help of. Uh, the Patet Lao in in this region, like helping keep the Ho Chi Minh Trail stocked and occupied. In 1975, they beat the U.S. and the U.S. starts pulling out of the re region. The city of Saigon was renamed today. The victorious communists who forced the city's surrender said the capital of South Vietnam henceforth will be known as Ho Chi Minh City. A North Vietnamese tank broke the gate at the president's palace in Saigon. A communist soldier ran the revolution's flag across the empty lawn. The shooting on this day the communists won was not in a battle, but a celebration. Saigon had already surrendered. And the Patet Lao seizes the opportunity over a period of months, like moving into towns and cities recently cleared of U.S. and CIA forces and removing supporters of the old government with the help of the locals. Um, and so and, and so this is when you have a ton of the like the wealthy and the collaborationists with the previous government, like getting out of a lot of them went to Thailand, which has been a like U.S. client state forever. And mm -hmm. yeah. And so the Patet Lao, like they start like they have the opportunity to and they've been they've been around for decades and they've been working for decades. They've been like saying the same things for decades. So like and then you have Prince Sufanavong shows up and he's been helping lead the Patet Lao this whole time and so he helps lend credence to some of the neutral people because they're like here's a member of the monarchy who'd been supporting the Patet Lao for decades and so they believed him when he said the Patet Lao's goal was peace and like national unity so on December 1st 1975 the Lao People's Democratic Republic is declared by the chairman of the Lao People's Revolutionary Party uh, that guy I mentioned earlier Kaesong Fomivan yeah, so they were a socialist party. They they take over, declare a uh, like Marxist-Leninist state. So unfortunately, there's as you can imagine, there's not a lot left after what I just described. After just 
30 years of like colonial warfare and ten, like a decade of, again, this just unimaginable bombing and deforestation. And I mean, I think even in 2020, I read that like three or 4% of the total land of the country is usable for growing food. And so like, I can only imagine that was lower at that point. So yeah, so they don't have anything, they don't have any infrastructure. Um, they try to collect, like do some agricultural collectivization and they end up having, of course, like what always seems to happen is they have some fucking droughts. And again, you don't have very much arable land to actually to use for agriculture uh, because so much of it has, it was either destroyed or has like unexploded ordnance in it. Um, they really had no industry. They didn't have much trade. Uh, political relations weren't great with, I mean, they were great with Vietnam because they'd been working together for years and years. Um, they were uh, pretty good with like the Cambodian communists, but I don't remember if Khmer Rouge had taken over yet, but obviously that becomes a problem pretty quickly. So, and then, yeah, one, one of the problems is that like, there was a black market in Thailand that like Laotian farmers were selling their goods because like that was the only place they could make money off of it, which was frustrating to the government because they were trying to uh, you know be self-sufficient, try and like actually build productive forces. Um, but then Thailand closes the border in 1976 because they have another military U.S.-backed military coup, and then the Th Thailand, along with the U.S., starts supporting like guerrilla terrorists, basically um, attacking farms, collectivized or otherwise, sabotaging production, assassinating officials. And then Cambodia, which has been having some of its own problems with its own CIA-backed leaders in Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge. Vietnam goes in to stop them, and China makes a big error in, and supports the Khmer Rouge over Vietnam. So then China starts a war with Vietnam. So then Vietnam doesn't really... And so basically what happens is Laos doesn't have any friends left except Vietnam. And so they get to a point in the 80s where they integrate a new, what they call, so the, uh, so the, the chairman of the party, Quezon, he, um, he cites Lenin in the new economic plan in like Bolshevik-controlled Russia, the Soviet Union, um, and saying like, okay, listen, we don't have, we don't, we gotta have. We gotta get. We gotta build some industry. We gotta kind of rush through a. Uh, we gotta get through private enterprise so that we can build some productive forces, that sort of thing. Uh, China did end up coming around and like being trade partners and give some aid. Vietnam's been a close friend of Laos through this whole period. The Soviet Union was helping, but by like the 70s and 80s, they were obviously not. I mean, they were supporting anti-colonial, like post-colonial countries and like socialist countries to the end, but like just not to the degree that they needed and with not enough, just not enough expertise. And they were also trying to build their own relations with the capitals West and it was a whole mess. And then the, uh, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea ended up being another one of the big um, supporters of Laos and helping them develop. Like, I think of all the socialist countries. I mean, socialist countries have always started from not a great base, you know, just because it always comes after civil war or in these formerly colonized countries. Um, I think Laos had it the hardest of any socialist country, just their, from their starting point, just from what I can tell. So.
throughout the throughout the 80s they did kind of try and do some economic restructuring similar like it was based a lot on the restructuring that happened in China with like under Deng Xiaoping and how uh, there was sort of the control like state control over the bourgeoisie and investment in private enterprise and they've they've sought investment from like the outside world because obviously that's what you need to build your productive forces when you especially when you don't have any like Lao did yeah and and that kind of brings us up to today they had so they had some trouble in the 90s once the Soviet Union collapsed like everybody like every other socialist country um, just because of the degree of the Soviet Union's aid to everybody mm-hmm. um, yeah, but uh, but they but they survived and yeah. So so Alex, what did you find out about modern Lao? I'd say that your initial analysis, really, of where they started with building socialism, is pretty on point from what I've seen of people who are sympathetic to socialist views, and even what I was starting to glean and looking at, kind of just more statistically based information, is that they were hit really hard and they had no infrastructure, like no systems, hardly of education. They didn't really have Lao education. Uh, There was a lot of stuff that was just inherently lacking because of their histories of being colonized and not having the ability to build themselves as a culture. And so for a while there, a lot of the first things that the Lao People's Democratic Republic started to put into effect were things like, you know, education, trying to figure out uh, economy, trying to uh, figure out how to work with the little bit of agriculture that they had, the arable land that they had because of the war, stuff like this. So even though it is probably one of the more bigger hit countries as far as uh, resources not available and wars and stuff, they're actually slowly starting to grow as an economy. And in 2017, it was uh, labeled as actually one of the fastest growing economies in the world. Um, I, I even found some some dorks who are like into economics, like writing papers <laughs> about how Vietnam and Laos are as developing countries are some of the most innovative, actually, in its development. So that's really mm. cool. A lot of the stuff that I'm finding is that even though they they don't have really the the bases and the foundations that a lot of countries that are developed do have, uh, they have been finding really interesting and creative ways of kind of moving forward and and progressing. Um, So, for instance, just going over some of like their economics, like you said, there isn't a lot of arable land for them, unfortunately. It's only about like 10% 10% or less, and it's largely rice paddies. Um, and uh-huh. 73% of the labor force is still agriculture, which only makes up 20.9% of their GDP. Um, and it's, you know, like very basic stuff like sweet potatoes, vegetables, coffee, et cetera, those kind of things. Um, their industry takes up about 6.1% of the labor force, but that makes up 33 of their GDP. Um, and so that is with extractive industry mining. Um, they're even starting to get into tourism, which is interesting, uh, processing of things like rubber um, construction. And then finally, you know, their services make up about 20% of the labor force. And that's 
45 GDP. So uh, they're, they're slowly growing with their their industry and their services and their unemployment rate because they focus so readily on trying to make sure that no surprise workers uh, strengthened that people were employed. Uh, their unemployment rate is 0.7, which is one of the lowest unemployment rates of the world. Um, and just as a little comparison, U.S. is, is at 3.81, which is just wild because of just their circumstances and their history of what they've been through. Their population is currently um, at 22% below the poverty line, which it, which sounds like a lot, but this is dramatically decreased since the 1990s already. They're really putting a lot of work into lowering this because in 1992, they had a 48% poverty rate. So it's already uh, gone down half from the 90s. And even a poverty rate of 22%, uh, if you compare that to the US, the US's poverty rate is 15.1%, which is just fucking wild to me that a country with so much wealth and opulence isn't that far off from a country that's been bombed to the tons, right? Yeah. It's just ridiculous mm-hmm. to me. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's slowly going down the poverty rate and it's really strengthening its economy slowly through uh, these, these different ways of kind of just like working where they can. And it's interesting because you, you kind of mentioned their military a little bit, but right now their military is quite small and one could see how that is an effect of their histories of war and kind of external forces and stuff like that. So it's really interesting just to see these like very factual quote unquote statistical numbers and weaving it into these stories of how they're developing as far as labor. They are, (laughs) I I hate, I hate that um, people are always looking at these developing countries in an infantilizing way because they're like their policies on labor are already amazing. <laughs> Let me see. I, I found one article by Socialist Voice that was doing a pretty fair, I think, assessment of uh, contemporary Lao. And they were talking about how under some labor laws that they put in, um, you know, all labor units must have an affiliated trade union to represent the workers. And so the Lao Federation of Trade Unions has have nearly 100,000 members, um, which is pretty wild because it's still a very small working class with uh, more than 70% of the population engaged in agriculture. Um, and the work is, you know, capped at usually t- uh, 80 hours a day or no more than 48 hours a week with overtime. Did you say 80 hours be- a day? No, sorry, eight hours a day with no more than 48 hours a week. With in overtime communism, having- they do time travel so that you have to work more in a day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a worker state, so you better be working. No. Yeah, so, and even overtime has to be decided beforehand in consultation with trade unions. So, like, the boss can't just be like, oh, you're doing overtime this week. The law also makes it difficult for workers to be dismissed, says the writer from Socialist Voice. Um, If the employer must, oh, if they are to be dismissed, the employer must find them alternate uh, employment and workers who are pregnant, undergoing medical treatment, or have given birth less than a year previously cannot be dismissed. And Ethan actually sent me another article kind of going into a little bit of the contemporary Lao by Artyukina, where they were saying that, you know, any work 
layoff must be justified in court, which I thought was amazing. Uh, oh, yeah. Such justifications must prove that the employer the employer has already sought new employment for the worker, with the work, worker being paid a termination allowance to support them while they continue to look for work. And employment is a task that the government and labor unions also help with. So it's really showing That's how... That's crazy that if your boss is going to fire you, they have to like at least try and find you another job. Yeah, it's like... And it sounds like they're pretty strict about the reasons for why one would be fired, too. So it's kind of kind of amazing. That's the real right to work. (laughs) Right. So, yeah, that's a little bit already showing how they're very progressive and workers rights minded and just like putting that kind of ideology into practice already in their um, their culture and society Uh, going on to infrastructure, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, They have done a lot of work in trying to bring electricity access to the country where there was hardly any before. Uh, No thanks to the French. (laughs) Um, Currently, electricity access is about 95% for total population, 98 for urban and 93 rural. And the cooler thing about it is that they get 72% of their electricity from hydroelectric plants and other renewable energy sources. And they're one of the leading countries for uh, hydroelectric plants. If, if we just want to be disgusted for a moment, uh, the U.S., their source of electricity is 70% fossil fuels. <sighs> yeah, it's gross. So yeah. it's just it's just cool to know that they're they're working around what they can and it inherently is greener and it's uh, another article said like quote with Lao pdr already producing far more electricity than it needs it is poised to become a major supplier of clean electricity to all southeast asia so that's really fucking awesome yeah that's, that's awesome um going on to some other parts of their society a big kind of um goal for uh the Lao PDR uh, government was to really bring education to its people. Um, I didn't really, I don't know if you touched on much, but they didn't really have much formal education within the Lao language because of kind of what we discussed. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was a thing that they were really starting to try to bridge that gap. Currently their literacy rates have gone and gone up uh, considerably compared to like right post revolution, current literacy literacy rates are uh, total eighty four percent, male ninety, female uh, just about eighty. You know, in urban areas, as expected, have more chances for education and school options. There was kind of some issues about like rural areas, since agriculture is such a big part of the life getting, you know, um, mandatory elementary school, but not really continuing school much longer because they didn't need the skills and stuff like that. So, uh, there's still some gaps to, to, to reach, but they're making some good progress on it. You know, the literacy campaigns were a huge goal for them. Um, so before there was really little formal education at all. So they were really starting from scratch uh, by replacing all French education, you know, with Lao education um, and actually making uh, criteria and curriculum, which was in Lao by Lao's um, people. Um, And so by 1983, 84, uh, literacy was estimated to increase 
by about 44% already from 1975. So that was like a big part of their, their, their goals for the people. And I actually had really hard times fighting literacy rates during French rule in general, just because that wasn't big surprise something that the French were really seeking to do. <laughs> um, mm. An author, Noonan, estimated that around 1954, enrollment into schooling was 10%. So they made a mm. lot of headway uh, in that literacy rate and that schooling um, life expectancies. In the 90s, you know, they they created compulsory education decrees, providing free education for all of its people, regardless of gender, ethnicity or special needs. Um, and preschool and primary school education has risen over time with a net enrollment rate of around 96, with um, the gender gap really starting to disappear slowly. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I it was really heartening actually because Noonan wrote a very non-biased very educational standpoint analysis of education in Laos that was actually published last year so it had a lot of good information about how how much they really are trying to bridge those gaps and honestly like with how high their their schooling and literacy rates are at this point compared to probably near virtually only 10% uh, pre-revolution, I'd say like, that's pretty amazing. Uh, yeah. I just, I think it's, I think it's great that education and trying to yeah bridge those gaps was so like such a priority when, as we've said multiple times, like there was so little to work from, like the fact that that was still prioritized is, is really heartening. Right. And obviously the West is always going to have very uh, insidious kind of uh, analyses of it. Like, oh, they're trying to, you know, indoctrinate them with the the views of Marxism, Leninism and, and stuff like that. But when it comes down to it, they're educating their people and they're teaching them how to read and write. Like, I don't know, I get I get pissed off with some of these analyses. I Yeah, I mean, like that, that they need to shut up with that. I mean, I we all we all like went to school here in the U.S. and like what kinds of just ridiculous shit did we learn in uh, like right. pretty much everything we learned about like U.S. history and about uh, economics and, and and politics. Like it's all it's all it was all fucking bullshit. So, yeah, they need to shut they need to shut the hell up about other people like, oh, well, it's just uh like they're 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 indoctrinating people to believe that like marxism is a good way of looking at the world like well we were indoctrinated to say the fucking fascist pledge of allegiance every morning every morning so <laughs> shut the fuck up right mm -hmm. we were indoctrinated to believe that we are able to steal land from indigenous people so i don't know um, yeah exactly i think it's much i would much rather someone be indoctrinated into believing that uh there's a class divide and like worker struggle than to believe that uh oh well you know sometimes uh when people do crimes it's just because that's what their race does or whatever Ooh. Yeah, I'd much rather the first. So, yeah, it is. It is kind of cool, though. I did read one article which said that they were kind of trying to debate whether, you know, Lao was a Marxist-Leninist or whatever. Um, and one person said that you know the the writings of Lenin are still very popular 
at bookstores and I was like, hell yeah. And I guess a lot of, uh, the, the classrooms, um, still have posters and stuff like that from, from those great minds. So that's pretty awesome. The next area that I looked at and, you know, this will be kind of like the last little, uh, main chunk of the society that I kind of looked into was healthcare. Um, so under the government, under the written word of the constitution, health services are provided by the government. Unfortunately, kind of with the theme of this analysis was that, you know, they didn't really have the infrastructure for medicine or medical services. Um, they didn't really have any infrastructure to train medical students for most of its history. Um, when people were trained in medicine uh, for a lot of its history, it was going to France from the French when they were colonized, obviously. So they didn't really have schools in their own country to be taught medicine. Um, finally, in uh, 1957, still under uh, kind of in between wars and stuff like that, they did get one medical school to open up where they started to train some of its its citizens to become doctors. It was just a very slow process because that was one school out of a whole country. And later as they uh, established the LPDR, uh, they got some help, you know, from the USSR, Vietnam and Cuba uh, to get more medical training and to grow that sector a little bit, um, largely through, you know, material help from these countries because it was still very low on resources. Um, and slowly the process of growth in medicine and healthcare has continued, you know, with the government run healthcare facilities and more schools for medical training. However, they're still having an issue where there's not a large enough ratio of medical workers to the general public, uh, despite its growth and, you know, continued competencies and independence of, uh, their medical system. Um, I did read one analysis from 2019 about medical education in Laos, and it seems very optimistic. Like the education they're getting is really important and good and like up to date it's just about finding enough of their citizens to become medical workers um but they are very uh, you know optimistic because it is growing and it's continually growing and uh, pursuing its citizens as medical trainees um and they're hoping that as it continues to grow it'll be a really good medical system for its people kind of in talking about covid and um Lao, like with the medical system, um, as of January 1st, 2021, there's only been 41 total cases of COVID-19 uh, <laughs> and with 40 of them fully recovered. They were really, mm -hmm. really quick to action to contain the virus um, and they kind of immediately closed borders and plus they got some aid from Vietnam and China, luckily. Um, some of the cases actually that they did have were from people out of the country. Um, so mm -hmm. that kind of reasoned with them about closing their borders and um, air traffic and kind of uh, putting everything on lockdown officially around March 2020. And they were very strategic with their monitoring when they did start to kind of loosen up on the borders. They would actively temperature check and um, symptom check people who were coming through borders, every single one, they would actively monitor those who were exposed to COVID-19. So they would quarantine those who were suspected, test those who were suspect suspected. They did, gosh, 
I didn't record the number, but the amount of tests and uh, follow-ups that they did were just like amazing with how much they were able to follow up and make sure to contain the virus. And uh, by the summer of 2020, they were able to loosen a lot of the, the restrictions on travel um, while still, you know, like monitoring people at checkpoints and stuff. Um, but honestly, like they still have not had another huge wave with it because they were so quick to closely monitor people and make sure that everyone quarantined. Um, it's, it's just pretty amazing with how quick action and kind of like people working together will, will make such a big difference in something like COVID-19 where, you know, we've seen elsewhere where it's, it's going to last forever basically. So that's, that's kind of what I found in general with kind of contemporary looks at the country. Uh, it really does seem that with all of its historical struggles and lack of resources, um, you know, exploitation through, you know, like drugs and even human trafficking, like out of Thailand, that's like a big issue for them right now. They've had a lot of things to overcome. And, you know, it's, it's hard to really make a qualification about how people are doing after those kinds of those kind of traumas really. So it, it seems like they really are making slow efforts to to reduce the, the issues that they have had and really work towards building their, their country and their economy. I was saying, I think I mentioned to someone on like discord that we were going to be talking about Lao and someone was like, Oh, well let's, uh, is Lao so is, are you going to answer is Lao socialist? And like, <laughs> I think like, I mean, I, I, I personally think it is because, but I think that your answer to that question has a lot to do with what you feel about I guess China to some extent or to a lesser extent just because they don't have the quite as much of an economic share but but is it is this idea of like it, your your stance on what a transitionary period to socialism looks like or like to to communism looks like and to me I mean uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess someone could say that, like, oh, well, they should have uh, done such and such thing, like, right when they, the Patsat Lao took, took power or whatever, right when they declared, like, oh, they could have abolished the value form or, or, or whatever, whatever that even fucking means. But, like, yeah, it's, it's the same kind of principle. Like, before you can get to that point where... Um, where you finally get rid of the bourgeoisie and get rid of all of the forces of capital in your society, like you have to have the, I mean, like, like we're Marxists, they go through, societies tend to go through a specific, like, like certain things have to happen for other things to happen. It's called materialism. And, and I just feel like, especially with Lao, you have the position of like starting from almost from scratch, like coming from literal decades of colonial violence and some of the most just um, incomprehensible like crimes against humanity possible done to it. And then like, and still reaching a point where they have more maternity leave than we do in the U S and, and they, your boss has to find you a job if they fire you and all that. Like if, if a society that's not doing that and that, that did that isn't socialist, then I don't even know what we're doing here anymore on the left. Like what's the point if, if something like that isn't something to be celebrated. Right. Yeah. Because it doesn't fit 
the exact like ideological theoretical idea like basically of what you would consider a socialist state you you gotta consider where they came from and what they're trying to do and what they're trying to build and i i do think like you said those things should be celebrated like their their clean energy like being able to provide for other countries because they got that shit on lock like their ability to to educate their people their ability to lower their poverty rate by half over a few decades like even to the point where it's almost to the point where the u.s's poverty rate is like i i don't know i I see them struggling with what they've been given and honestly making a lot of gray out of it. Yeah. Like it could have been so much worse. It could have just been, I mean, you see it in, in there are all kinds of like formerly colonized places that didn't have a successful, like socialist party running it. Like who didn't have a successful communist movement and things are dire there and it's terrible. And, and capitalists continue to exploit and, enslave them and and this way like they're they're driving their own i mean they considering where they are like where they started they're driving their own development like they're driving their own path forward and like and i think that's an amazing mm-hmm. thing for a like formerly colonized country like that's right yeah, yeah. that's awesome and they kicked out imperialists and then they were bombed some of the most and now they're considered one of the like fastest developing countries like you gotta recognize that absolutely well yeah and uh Alex, you said it in the chat, like luxury uh, gay communism. There's an interesting little thing I learned about it is that um, Laos is, what is, I think, the only formerly colonized country that never had, during or after colonization, a law on the books against homosexuality. So, uh, hmm. so make of that what you will. Oh, yeah. Are we ready to wrap up? I think that's all I got. Yeah. yeah, I didn't have much more. Okay. Excellent. Okay. So, um, thank you so much, Ethan and Alex for taking us through this journey of Lao, um, and the history and present day issues and the battles they've kind of overcame and are still overcoming as well as kind of dealing with obviously marginalized identity issues as Alex was talking about as well as education basic things that um, a society goes through but under the context of after finishing up this long history as Ethan was talking about of imperialism and colonialism and just being um, horribly bombed and just all of that um, very very upsetting so but um, thank you all for joining us and thank you for tuning in um okay um if you would like to contact us we have a gmail <laughs> event the future podcast uh at gmail.com all lowercase again event the future podcast at gmail.com and then twitter.com at proletarian info and we will also have the sources and material and future kind of uh research if you would like to do those things and deep dive um please do um in the show notes is that show notes yeah i, think so, yeah. I was just gonna warn people if you do some reading on this subject 
there's a lot of bullshit. I had oh to weave through yeah. so much bullshit. There's a lot of infantilizing, anti-communism, just like ridiculous stuff. So it was not easy even looking up that very basic statistical information. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and it's it's the same. I mean, it's the same thing with any kind of uh, communist mm-hmm. country. But yeah, it was that was the thing I noticed too, is just like, God, it took like twice as long just because you have to filter everything through and like and through a lens of like okay well what what is which what's bullshit here like what's ideology like and and double check everything yeah so if you're doing the research just like use caution yes because unfortunately in the imperial core we have to be mindful of these things and use critical thinking skills obviously because not only are they socialists but but they're also um south asian people so it's and just everything that comes with it colonized people so yeah just be very mindful as alex and ethan were talking about but anyway okay thank you all so much um i look forward and everyone looks forward to seeing you all next time um and Uh, goodbye bye (laughs) bye bye
าสนปฏิบัติลาวผู้จะตั้งนำพาทุกไซสนาของการปฏิบัติลาวจงมา